Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for the church, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your love offering to the son, a people united by the broken body and shed blood through faith, which is a gift given according to your grace. Help us to grow with greater understanding of that truth this morning. Uh, Bring to our hearts and minds, Lord, the ability to see the the greater depths of your gospel. And by your grace and power of your spirit, I ask that you'd enable me to declare this truth as we um, look at this wonderful epistle. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome, everyone. Uh, Visitors, um, we're blessed to have you with us. Now, if you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Romans. You have an outline with you this morning. Now, we're going to be looking at the, an overview of Romans. Does anyone need a Bible? Because you're going to have to look at the text if you really want to follow along. If you need a Bible, you don't have one, raise your hand and one of the deacons will uh, grab a Bible for you. Raise your hand up, please. Hold them up and the men will bring you a Bible. You can just open to Romans 1. Hold your hand up if you need a Bible, and keep it held up while you're standing as we read the Word of God. Please stand for the reading of the text. Don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole book. I'm going to read the first seven verses. You're like, whew. This is God's Word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. We began an exposition of the book of Romans, uh, February 2012, ending last week, um, just three months shy of two years, uh, a total of 66 sermons in all, which is minute compared to the depth of this grand epistle. Uh, The book of Romans, as you know, or you should know by now, teaches us that man is severely helpless and sinful, and that God alone saves sinners. Only God can save sinners. Sinners cannot save themselves. They cannot stand before God and give an account of their life with a hope to get in. Romans also teaches us how God saves sinners. Amen? It's by way of his predetermined grace through dependent faith in the faithful one, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, one of the problems with weekly exposition, there's really not a problem with it, because that's the way that all preachers should preach, is verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But um, as you go through a book like Romans, we, uh, only being human as we are, have a tendency to, to lose sight of the big picture. Because it takes so many weeks to, you know, to tread the whole, to go verse by verse, breaking this down. And many doctrines come from out of the scripture. So we focus studying the doctrine so that we understand what the word means by what it says. It's one thing to know the word of God. It's another thing to know what it means by what it says. So Paul, no doubt, um, intended when he wrote this letter for it to be read aloud in one sitting to the churches, the various congregations in Rome. And he begins with the amazing story of God's redemption in Christ. And that which he most certainly understands so well, he wants all Christians to understand so well. And to see themselves in the grand story of God's redemption. That includes you. So Paul writes Romans to explain the story more clearly, to teach how both Jew and Gentiles have been predetermined to be saved by God, a people from throughout all nations. The gospel was not only for the Jews. See, God so loved the world without distinction that he gave his only begotten son. The Jews didn't realize this. God so loved the world without distinction that all the nations, that I should say people from throughout all the nations, would be saved by way of the same gospel. And they're all part of God's grand, amazing story, and that is faith in Jesus Christ alone. Your relationship with Jesus Christ by faith today, as you sit here, is part of this grand story. It is part of this narrative. This includes you who believe in Christ this morning, who trust, have entrusted yourself to him completely. That's faith. Not believing about him. Believing in him. Trusting in him. There'll be plenty of people in hell who believe in Jesus. Who believe about Jesus. Who don't trust in Jesus for their salvation. Paul wants to make clear that God's grand story, this grand narrative, has been God's plan. And that which his prophets have been preaching from the foundation of the earth. We read in the conclusion of the letter, as we did last week, chapter 16, verse 25, The preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings, Old Testament, has been made known to you all, to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God. Jesus is the mystery revealed. So the gospel starts with God. The gospel does not start with you. It starts with God. And until you understand that the gospel is about God and it's about his initiative, you do not have a full view of the gospel. You live in America. This is a me-centered society. It's not about you. Your salvation, as a matter of fact, is for ultimately the glory of God. We're a means to his end. In chapters 1, I should say chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, refer to the gospel of God concerning his beloved son and his plan of salvation. In other words, 
God has always had one plan. There's no plan B. You know, it wasn't, you know, Jesus was delivered into the hands of, of Roman soldiers by way of religious hypocrites. It was no surprise to Almighty God. That was the plan. That was the plan. The theme of Romans is verse 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. First appeared in Habakkuk, as we read this morning. So here's your outline that you'll follow this morning. Section 1 is made up of chapters 1 through 4. And we, here we read of man's depravity and his need for justifying grace through faith. That's what's covered in these first four chapters. And verse 16, Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Saving power of God is not the power of eloquence. It's not the power of education or energy or some dramatic esoteric experience. The power of God is the gospel of God. Amen. So it's God who's chosen the only program that will save people from sin and death. But there's so many religions in the world. Yes, those are man-made. God's always had one way to be saved. And we're going to see why there's so many religions in just a moment. God has chosen one program that will save people from sin and death, and that is the foolishness of preaching this message. Foolishness, that's right. Paul said, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews. It's a stumbling block. To Greeks, it's foolishness. Believing in a crucified Christ, that's right. But if he hadn't risen up from the grave, there'd be nothing to talk about. But he did. Now, logically, we have to begin where Paul begins. And that is with the bad news of human sin, the utter depravity of man. We have to begin with the anger of God. That is his wrath. That is his anger against sin and, yes, against the sinner. Paul describes sinful human nature here in the first chapter and the always downward spiral into greater and greater levels of depravity. And he begins with the universal reality of man's guilt. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against un- all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth that God has shown to them. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So therefore they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were dark, and claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things and cars and houses and boats. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. That's where religions come from. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. In other words, you reject God, you reject what's called general revelation, creation, God lifts his hand of restraint. And if God lifts his hand of restraint from man, man is capable of any sin at any time. At any time. Revealing for us here the condemnation of, his man, of, of mankind and his absolute need for God's righteousness. Because he has none of his own. God has revealed himself to every human, human being by way of, in this context, what's known as general revelation. That is the created order. Therefore, all mankind is without excuse. And then man responds by suppressing that truth. They see it. They press it down. It's like trying to hold a volleyball under the water in a pool. Try it sometime. Just with one hand, try to hold down a volleyball. and It's going to try to slip and squeeze up. But you, you have to fight to hold it down. And men in their sinful condition recognize there's a God and they suppress the truth. Where in turn they worship and serve something created. Rather than realizing they're made in the image of God, they make God in their image because idols don't judge your sin. You know, human beings are the only creatures that are made imago Dei. The only creatures made in the image of God are human beings, meaning that they are designed to display God's nature, character, and glory. Every human being. Believer or not, is made in the image of God. As a mirror is made for reflection, so God has made us instruments for reflecting his glory. But, because of Adam's original rebellion, all of mankind shares Adam's DNA. They shared Adam's DNA. So because of the fall, the first man who fell into sin... We share in his DNA. That's called our Adamic nature. And the mirror, therefore, of God's image image has been shattered. Shattered. The image of God is therefore distorted through human beings. As John Calvin put it, God's image is deformed, vitiated, mutilated, maimed, disease-ridden, and disfigured. Unless you're perfectly sinless here this morning. And if you think you are, you are greatly deceived. So chapter 1 describes the morally debased pagan, okay, defined for us. His behaviors are defined in verses 29 to 32. Notice, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. There's gossips, verse 30, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's decree, did you get that? Though they know God's decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they know that. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, in chapter 2, he moves from that category and gradually moves on to address the Jew. Okay, this is the pagan environment. 
And he's going to prove that the righteousness of God is as necessary for them as it is for some lost idol worshiper, even though they know about the one true God. You see, the, the Jews were a people who, who judged. They were very, very prejudiced. They pronounced all Gentiles as being born in sin and under condemnation, period, end of story, because they weren't God's covenant kids. The Jew here, chapter 2, who's ready and quick to judge the Gentile forgets one principle, and that is that he is indicted by the same principle as the pagan. The fact that he does evil in spite of better knowledge. Even more knowledge than general revelation provides. The hills, the mountains, the seas, the sky, the sun, the universe declares his glory, and everyone knows that. The Jew has greater light. They have the oracles of God. So the same principle that also indicts him, the pagan, also indicts the Jew. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, the Jew's not guilty of the exact same actions, per se, but he is guilty of sinning against knowledge. Okay, you see the principle? And then when you get down to verses 12 to to 12 to 16 in chapter 2, there's another indictment. He explains now an internal kind of knowledge. As God has planted the law, his law upon the heart of all. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearer of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Notice this, verse 14. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So you may be wondering, well, what about those in the deep jungles of wherever land who've never heard the truth? Let me help you. They're guilty. They're all guilty. All mankind is guilty. Wherever you come from, however you've grown up, you're guilty before this holy, righteous God. People in the deep jungles of wherever, Everland, all look left and all look right before they steal. Before they murder. It's here, written on the heart. They know innately the difference between right and wrong. Now, there's certain levels of knowledge and understanding. The more you know, the more you're accountable for. Children of this church, children of this church, all ages, children of this church, you are blessed to have a mom and dad who believe. As you grow up, you have to trust Jesus yourself for salvation. Mom and dad don't get you into heaven. You must trust and believe in Christ by faith. And the more you know, the more you're accountable for. So he moves on now to define in more detail that the Jews possess God's law and possessing the law, they're not exempt from judgment either, either, whatever it is. But that God actually requires fulfillment of his law. 
Romans 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? If he's indicted too, what advantage does he have? Or what is the value of circumcision? Circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Covenant with the one true God. Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had the very word of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their, faithful, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true and everyone a liar. Boy, does this sound good or does this sound bad? Okay, he's got to get the bad news out of the way before he gets to the good. Amen? We don't share the, bad, we don't share the good news of the gospel until you clearly declare the bad. Otherwise, the good news isn't good news. Here then we see every category of humanity, every level of awareness, every person from every category is found guilty. You have the morally debased of chapter 1, the morally reformed of chapter 2, the moral majority of America and churchgoers included there, and then you have the religious Jew. Along with the tribesmen in the deep jungles of anywhere land, they're all guilty. Notice, notice how it manifests itself. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Well, I was a God seeker. No, you weren't. If you came to Christ, he was seeking you. And whom he seeks, he finds. But the only God-seekers there are are those who are in Christ. If you're seeking God, you're here because he's been, you've been sought by him and found. And you want and you desire. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In the paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be shut. That's what it means. That every mouth may be shut. And the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his, sights, in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Every sin, sin against human beings, as we see listed there, is sin ultimately against God. Gossip, slander, egotism, racial prejudice, the devaluing of human life, violence, murder, guilty. And no one can be saved by trying to adhere to God's law. Now we're really in a predicament. Well, I'm already guilty, and now if I follow the Ten Commandments, I won't get in? No. Because you've already failed. You've already sinned. No human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No one is right. No one can be deemed right. No one can try hard enough following the rules. We have no recuperative power within us. We're helpless. That leads us to the good news. Indictment against humanity. Good news. Good news. No good news in Romans till chapter 3, verse 21. But now... But, but, that's a great word, but. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20 is an absolute assault on mankind and his distorted image of God. Enter the scene, the true imago Dei. Enter the scene, the true image of God. Enter the scene as it's been said, Christ is called the image of God par excellence. The true, holy image bearer of the Father, Jesus. Regarding mankind, verse 22, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And notice, are justified by his grace as a what? As a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation means satisfaction. God's wrath, chapter 1, verse 18, can only be satisfied through a blood sacrifice. That blood sacrifice must be perfect, and there's only one. Only one who's perfect, and it's Jesus, the Son of God. And those who believe are justified. You see, justification is a verdict. It's a verdict. A declaration of a person's status in view of the court. If you repent of your sin and you repent of all these weird beliefs and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're justified, you're declared free from all blame. But you don't know what I did when I was a kid. God does. You don't know what I did when I was in college. God does. You don't know what I did to my wife. God does. And faith and trust in him justifies you and forgives you. Even of murder? Yes. Even of abortion? Yes. The opposite of justification is condemnation. To condemn is to render a verdict of guilty. To justify is to render a verdict of not guilty. Good news, amen? This is why John 3.18 says this. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is already condemned. The world is full of condemned people. You're removed from the category of condemnation to the the category of justification by faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Justified, declared free from all blame, forgiven as far as the east is from the west. Go east, you're always going east. Amen? You see, in other words, friends, there's no righteousness that is inherent with anyone. It can't be found in here. It has to come from outside of you. That's the grace gift of God and his son, Jesus Christ. He came and lived the life that he demands according to the law. You can't do it. And then he laid his life down as a sacrifice, as a propitiation, satisfying the wrath of the Father when he went to the cross, raising again from the dead, validating his life, and the only one who could do it. Validation through resurrection. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel loved by God based on this indicative truth? Do you feel loved by God because of what Christ has done for you? Or, or do you base your worth, do you base your significance, do you base how much you're loved by God merely on what you're doing for God? The basis of his love is what he did in his son, through his son for you. He values you because you're in his son. Because of what he has accomplished. So when he sees you, he sees his son because you're in the son. You're in Christ by faith. 
You can't compete with that. (laughs) We serve out of gratitude for that. Amen? And that's not unlike Abraham, chapter 4, who lived long, long ago, who believed God, and the scripture says it was accounted to him as righteousness. Chapter 4, here now is an example of righteousness by way of faith. Look at chapter 4. What shall we say then was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Long before Christ came. How were people saved in the Old Testament? By faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You see, they were trusting in the promise of God that he would provide a sacrifice in their place. They look forward by faith. We who live this side of the cross look back by faith. The centerpiece of time, the the, the fulfillment of all of God's promises are found in Jesus Christ by way of his cross. That's it. That's the only way to be saved. People saved in the Old Testament, same way we're saved in the New. They lived off the credit card, so to speak. We live off the debit card of Christ crucified. So here's our Old Testament example, Abraham, justified, declared free from all blame by way of faith as a grace grace gift of God. You know, most, most people in our day, most people in any day, cannot grasp the glorious news of what God demands for us. That is, that under the law, he demands perfect obedience, and he freely offers us the gospel, which fulfills the obedience of God. People refuse to accept it. They refuse the free gift of righteousness because it makes so little sense to them. Because they, they, don't, they think they're good enough and have no need of grace. And if you don't think you need grace, then you don't need a savior. Because, oh, I'm such a good person. What do you hear in America? I'm a good person. <laughs> you haven't read the Bible lately, have you? But I'm such a good person. I'm trying. You're on the broad road that leads to destruction, Jesus said. There's a straight way. It's a narrow way. The gate is narrow. Very few go in that way because it's by faith and trust in someone other than yourself. Is Jesus the righteous, holy son of God. So man's depravity and justification by faith, chapters 1 through 4. We move to the second section, the reign of grace, chapters 5 through 8. Notice chapter 5. Therefore, now after the truth that we just read, he writes, therefore, based on that truth, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you're no longer in the category of chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God. You now have peace with God. Having been reconciled to God through Christ, notice the past tense of that verse, by the way, since you've been justified by faith. Amen? If you believe you've been justified, it's done. We're now at peace with God. Because at one time, we were at war with God. Well, I wasn't really at war with God. Well, let me tell you this. He was at war with you, according to Scripture. Because he's holy and you're not. We live in a world characterized by sin as sinners in the midst of misery, full of our own flashful desires, ruled, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, by the prince of the power of the air, the devil. 
That's why Jesus said to the most religious people of the day, your father's the devil because you don't believe in me. Religious leaders, theologians, your father's the devil. Now, although we live here, we're in Christ, we're citizens there. We live here, we're citizens of heaven. We are members of the household of faith. Positionally, you're in Christ, so God sees you as perfectly righteous. Because you're in Christ. So in verses 1 through 11, we see the blessings of righteousness. Notice verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Never face wrath. You'll never be judged for your sin. Did you know that? Hello? (laughs) Two years and nothing? (laughs) Because Jesus bore the judgment of God in your place. Jesus bore the wrath of God. When Jesus said in the garden, Father, I pray that this cup may pass, what cup was he talking about? The cup of God's wrath. Fully God, fully man, in his humanity, he felt the tension, not of the physical abuse he would take, but of the separation he would face from the Father. Hell on earth. He suffered hell. Hell descended on Jesus on the cross. Darkness descended. Hell. Separation from his Father. Let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He drank the cup so that you'll never taste a drop. He was forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you will never hear, depart from me. I never knew you. You'll never hear it. If you're in Christ. Verses 12 to 21, we see the imputation of righteousness. That is something that's placed upon your account that you don't deserve. You don't deserve righteousness, but by faith and trust in Jesus... It's imputed to your account. It's placed upon you. And if you believe, then you see and understand all of your sins were imputed to him on that day. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's the disobedience of Adam. That's why you're a sinner. You share his Adamic nature. His DNA. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That is all who believe. All kinds of men and women from all kinds of places who believe. Okay, that's chapter 5. Okay, now chapter 6. We see the demonstration of God's righteousness. And what what's the theological term is that, beloved? We move from justification to? Thank you. Sanctification. Set apart. God sets you apart immediately, positional sanctification, and your Christian life now, you're continually being sanctified. Okay? It's an ongoing, growing, ever-growing reality until we're in glory. So the good news here that God in his mercy has made a way to pardon our sins, remove our guilt, accept us as right, justifying us, is faith that is made manifest through a changed life. You can tell the person's a Christian, in other words. Amen? They don't just say Jesus. They just don't have a bumper sticker or a fish. They truly believe. Like there's some evidence in their lives. 
So Paul begins chapter 1 after all of this talk about grace that says this. Look, regardless of the depth of sin, God's grace superabounds all that sin. Okay? So you're going to have some clown that's going to say, well, if, if my sin brings more glory to God, why don't I just keep on sinning so he gets more glory? That's a moronic way of thinking. Paul knows this. Well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, verse 2. How are we who died to sin still live in it? Now, though we all struggle with and against sin, Christian, do you struggle with sin? Okay, the struggle against sin began the moment you became a Christian. There was no struggle before. It begins the moment you're born again, and it continues until the day you die. Struggle against sin. What he's concerned about here is is ongoing sin. Notice, those who continue in. Now, we all struggle with it, but continuing in it is something different. And Douglas Moo, who did a grand work in Romans, wrote this. Quote, Continuing in or living in sin is best taken as describing a lifestyle of sin, a habitual practice of sin, such that one's life could be said to be characterized by that sin rather than by the righteousness God requires, which is impossible for the Christian as a constant condition, end quote. Right? You may fall into it, but you, that's not something that characterizes you. Well, I'm in Christ. which says, dude, you're a drug dealer. And I see prostitutes coming out of your house all the time. Well, I'm in Christ, I believe. But your life doesn't manifest the reality of one that's been transformed. Ah, get out of my face. You're just judging. So, here in chapter 6, we come into contact with Paul's first imperative. First command. Everything else has been indicative up to this point. Everything up to this point has been a statement of fact. And then in verse 11, we, uh, we see the first command. Notice, though, verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life he lives, he lives to God. Okay, now that's an indicative statement. That's a statement of fact. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a command. You must consider this to be reality. Are you with me, beloved? Am I going too fast? No, <laughs> no please hurry up. <laughs> We're doing fine. We're doing fine. I wrote the time down. We're doing just fine. <sighs> okay. Now, notice uh, chapter 6, we go on to verse 12. Let, no, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but you're under grace. See, as Christians now, it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit which is now the norm for Christian living, not the law. The norm for Christian living is the presence of the Holy Spirit of God who leads us, guides us, and directs us according to the Word of God. Amen? We're not under law, we're under grace. 
Our desires have changed. We want to honor God. We want to worship God. We want to live for the glory of God. Oh, but you have no idea. There's days I think that and I do just the opposite. Oh, that's true for everyone and we're going to get to that. Amen? Let's get to it right now because I don't have time to say what I was going to say. Okay, we move into chapter 7. And anyone who's lived as a Christian for more than 10 minutes, make that 10 seconds realizes that sin still remains in them. Amen? Sin still remains. So Paul goes on and he describes this intense conflict that every believer struggles with as a Christian. Notice verse 15, chapter 7. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That's the struggle. Okay, we know that Christ dwells in us, right? Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Okay, Christ is in me. But yet sin also dwells in, dwells in me, we see in verse 17 and 20. For anyone who may think, well, that's Paul talking about before he, was a, before he was a Christian. Wrong. He's talking about the tension as a Christian. Paul found what he wanted to do was what he didn't do, and what he did do is what he didn't want to do. And it's the sin that he hated which he ended up doing. And now notice verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. That is not a cry of despair. That is a theological cry that begs an answer, and it's answered for us in verse 25. Notice, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And that's that ongoing tension of the Christian life of a justified people. Now, many times we... We feel distant from God because of our sin, amen? But we're called to come boldly to the throne of grace. And sometimes what we do when we sin, feeling guilty, we pull away from intimacy with God, which results in pulling away from one another, other believers, and then we go into hiding or something. But what God has done is he's granted us the gift of one another to encourage one another on to get our eyes affixed back in the right place. I should say the right person. Overt introspection is not a good thing. Periodic introspection is good. Too much introspection will lead you down to the ground in depression. Affix my eyes back on Christ, amen? That's what we encourage one another to do. Chapter 8, we see the assurance of God's manifold wisdom. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, because he was sinless, that's why. So here we're reminded that we're no longer condemned, because condemnation is how many of us feel It's how many of us feel because of the reality of chapter 7. Are you with me? 
That's how we feel. So he's reminding us there is no condemnation. He goes on in verses 5 through 9. He talks about those of the flesh and those in the spirit. Beloved, that is not the tension that's spoken of in in chapter 7. That is just two categories of people. Those in the flesh are unbelievers. Those in the spirit who have the spirit are believers. That's what he's talking about. You're no longer of the flesh. You're of the spirit because you have the spirit. Okay, you're with me? Notice. Verses 12 to 17. Actually, just jump down to verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. No, no fear of condemnation and judgment. But you've received the spirit of adoption of sons whom cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You know what this has to do with? This has to do with possession. Heirs with Christ, you're owned. You have the spirit, you're owned. You've been purchased. He lives in you. He indwells you. In other words, he possesses you. So friends, when you hear these crazy people who talk about Christians who can be demon-possessed, that is heretical. That's crazy. Do you know why? Because you're already possessed by the Holy Spirit. You can't be possessed by a demon when you have the Holy Spirit who possesses you. He bought you. He owns you. Sealed. Done. A house divided cannot stand. You're possessed by the Spirit of God. So as such, a possessed people owned by God have the hope of future glory. Verse 18. Then in verse 31... What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be what? Against us. Not even a demon. Who can be against us? And he goes on to, to uh, flesh that out, which we don't have time to look at. Okay, now next category. We move uh, man's depravity, justification by faith, to the reign of grace. And now God and history. God and history, chapters 9 through 11. We see God and his purposes in redemption. Showing us the, the truth of divine grace. And Paul is showing us here that salvation is totally, completely according to the sovereign grace of God. Okay? In other words, you had nothing to do with it. And he knows that people will have a problem with that because we're prideful. But we really had nothing to do with it. So he's going to amplify what he was explaining back in chapter 2, that salvation is according to the purposes of God, not the rituals that you carry out. Now, Paul goes on to teach his elective purposes here, God's elective purposes, um, which are very difficult for some people to accept. Notice chapter 9. It's not as though the word of God has failed, because he's talking about Israel now. Okay, Israel was given all the truth of God, but hardly any of them believed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because there is offspring. Through Isaac your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. So Israel's original election is a nation, and God's purposes in election can be dramatized here now between the elective purposes of God between two individuals, Jacob and Esau. Well, they went on to be nations. That's right. He's talking about nations, but he begins with two individuals. All right? 
And then in verses 8 through 24 of chapter 9, we come into contact with a literary style of writing known as a diatribe. A kind of critical discourse. This is an imaginary dialogue with an opponent that Paul makes use of many times in the book of Romans. And notice what he says. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Okay, that's from Genesis. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purposes of election might continue, but because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, Paul knows that someone at this point, even in our day, will say, well, God's unfair, God is unjust. So Paul continues, what shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Some at this point will, will ask, well, what about human free will? Okay? So he continues. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but it depends on God who has mercy. So salvation is not ultimately based on some manner of human effort, is it? But entirely on God's merciful will. That's what he's breaking down. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Some will say at this point, how then can he find fault in those who resist him? If you're telling me I have to believe and I resist him, how can he have fault in me? Find fault, so Paul continues. Well, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will then? If, if that's his will, who can resist his will? So he continues by answering the question with a question. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for, for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? just like he did with Pharaoh. Hardened in him. Hardened him. But it says he hardened himself. Yes, and then God what? Lifted his hand and turned him over to himself to show his mercy on millions as he's shown to you. Oh, man, this is a church that teaches divine election. This is a church that teaches the Bible. (laughs) We teach the Bible. Then we get to chapter 10, that the proclamation of the gospel through human agency is God's plan. Okay, we see that, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How will they know the truth unless someone is sent? Blessed are the feet of those who bring the gospel. Good tidings of gospel blessing, amen? So it's through humans that he preaches. Well, then someone will say, well, what about, what about Israel? Chapter 11, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Bottom line, every elect ethnic Jew, in fact, has or will come to true saving faith and the one true Messiah. There's only one way of salvation. There's not a special plan for ethnic Jews. There's one. It's the true Jew, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, what if, they'll say, someone will ask, has God rejected his people? 
verse 2, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God again? Israel, Lord, they have killed your prophets in verse 4. But what does God reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by what? Grace. The only way a Jew can be saved is by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Notice, anyway, when you get down to verse 26, it says, When this partial hardening of Israel is lifted... When the fullness of the Gentiles are brought in, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Okay, now here's the big question, and I'm not going to go, I'm not going to jump over it because you'll all leave here. Well, what about chapter 11? What does it mean that all Israel will be saved? Now, this is a much debated text, so here's some opposing views. Are you ready? The The first view goes like this. All Israel refers to each and every Israelite without exception. That's easily dismissed. Because he's not talking about every Israelite. And he's already said that not all Israel is true Israel. Spiritual Israel. Not every Israelite is a true spiritual Israelite. If you're in Christ, you're a true spiritual Israelite. Second view. All Israel refers to the entire company of the redeemed, both Jew and Gentile alike, which makes up the true Israel of God. But the context here, verse 25, clearly refers to physical and not spiritual Israel. So there's no plausible reason that that Paul would move from ethnic Israel in verse 25 to spiritual Israel in verse 26. Okay? So that leads us to the third view. Third view is that all Israel refers to God's Jewish elect, physical Jews, chosen according to grace throughout time. Okay? And there is a few Jews from throughout each and every generation, from Paul's day to this day, that God saves, and they're being saved. But, that view isn't a mystery. That's pretty common knowledge, right? If any physical Jew throughout the world at any time is elect before the foundation of the earth, at time, sometime they'll come to faith, amen? But notice, back in verse 25, let you be wise, lest you be wise in your own sight, Gentile believers, I want you to understand this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In this way, the way of the mystery, all Israel will be saved. So that leads us to the fourth view, which a view that I believe and adhere to, that all Israel refers to God's Jewish elect, physical Jews chosen according to grace. You said that was the belief of number three that you just said. Okay, with this addition a mass majority of whom will be living at the time when God initiates a special work of grace, bringing in a large number of ethnic Jews. After all the Gentile elect are brought in, all Israel will be saved. So now the next question, what does all Israel mean? Okay, all right, because you asked. (laughs) All Israel, that phrase occurs over a hundred times in the New Testament with a variety of meanings. Oftentimes it refers to some Israelites as representative of the whole, and I think that's how we have to see this. Okay? For instance, as an example, 2 Samuel 16, verse 22. When Absalom tried to overthrow his father's kingdom, remember that? It says this. They pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Does that mean every single Israelite saw them? No, of course not. 
inside of all Israel. Also, that phrase, all Israel, almost always refers to Jews living at a specific time. So the mystery would be, once the last Gentile is saved, God's going to do this grand work in saving a bunch of ethnic Jews, and he returns. Could that be this afternoon? Sure. You and I don't need to know about it. CNN don't need to know about it, right? So you don't need to be watching for anything except his return. Amen? And then we come into the first doxology, chapter 11, verse 36. Context, think about salvation. God chooses, God elects. God's going to save who he's going to save. Why? Because for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Sovereign ruler. Sovereign ruler. Now we move to the last section. A a, a regenerated people. The church of Jesus Christ. Okay, we've just learned all of this doctrine. Paul has broke out all this doctrine. And he gets to chapter 12 to 16. And he says, this is therefore now how you shall live. Because of all this truth, all these indicatives, we now move to the imperatives. Here's the statements of fact. This is how you apply all that to your life. Same principle laid out by Paul in the letter to the Ephesians. First three chapters, all indicative. Fact, 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 fact. God, 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 God. Therefore, chapters 3, 4, uh, four, 5, and 6, this is how you now shall live. Amen? Indicative to the imperative. Chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, based on all of these 11 chapters, so to speak, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do, me, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, living sacrifices. Notice he goes on to talk about the gifts of grace. See, the church cannot function without the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. That's a great principle. Amen? So, though we are many, verse 5, but one body, individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If it's prophecy, proclaiming the truth in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes with generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Gifts. Gifts of the Spirit to the church. Now, I must say, unfortunately in our day, Many who've been under either a misinterpretation of scripture or application in 15 years of serving in pastoral ministry, if someone calls me and says, hey, I'd like to come and meet with you. I said, well, what do you want to talk about? I want to talk about the gifts. I've noted over the years, when I get that call, rarely has it ever been about service, (laughs) exhortation, never about contribution with generosity. Or cheerful acts of mercy. Unfortunately, in our day, many who have been under certain kinds of teaching want to instead talk about an esoteric experience. I said, I thought you wanted to talk about gifts. I do. So when I say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm talking about tongues. Or exorcism. Something like that. 
some type of cryptic you know, practice that rouses their emotions. That's very dangerous. Very dangerous. Sometimes people want to talk about the sign gifts of the apostolic age. Signs served for a reason, and that reason was for a season. Now, you may believe in tongues. That's, that's fine. You're not going to practice it here. But, you know, you can believe in that. We believe that that is a gift that was a sign gift in the apostolic age, just like signs of an apostle belong to who? The apostles. The sign served for a reason, and that reason was for a season. As a matter of fact, as I get ready to close up here, let let me show you what tongues was for um, in the early church. Paul addresses this in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. He says in verse 21, In the law it is written. Okay, He's referring to Isaiah chapter 28. By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. So if Isaiah is writing this people, who's he referring to? To Jews, this people, the Jews. I will speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, in other words, consequently, as a result, tongues are a sign. Not for believers, but for unbelievers. Specifically in context, what kind of unbelievers? Unbelieving Jews, which served as a sign that God was moving from using this national people to all nations of the earth with the proclamation of the gospel. And that fact was finalized in 70 AD when the temple was raised with a Z to the ground. Amen? So it served as a sign. Sign is for a reason. Reason is for a season. And again, if, if, if you are here and you believe in tongues or it's a private thing that you use, look, I'm not going to banter with you about that, but we clearly teach that it has no place in being used in the church today. That's an apostolic gift. Signs of the New Testament. It served its purpose. There's no reason that the Jews need to know that God has moved from using them as a covenant people to all nations of the earth. Amen? No reason. It's clear. Then in chapters 9, uh, chapter 12, verses 9 through 18, we see characteristics of a true believer. Did you notice that? Romans 12. I'm almost done. Thanks for hanging out. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. You want to outdo one another? You want to outdo your brothers and sisters? Don't try to outdo one another by, by, by showy gifts. Amen? I don't need to, to, to display myself. No. Outdo one another by showing honor. Verse 10. Show honor to your brothers and sisters. Outdo them that way. We'd be loving some of that here. Amen? amen. We'd be loving it. Chapter 13. This is how a Christian lives in his government. What do we do about authorities in government? Quite simply, let every person be subject to governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Hitler was instituted by God? Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you obey him and, and go slaughter people? No, because that's contrary to the commanded will of God. 
right? So we obey authorities unless they demand what God forbids or forbid what God demands. We don't need to down talk, smack talk the president, the governor, or anyone else. Amen? We're called to what? Pray for them. You can take what they say and line it up with scripture that will help you pray even more. (laughs) Right? But you don't have to be like the commentators on CNN and Fox because we're Christians. We're subject to them because God has placed them there. Amen? Chapter 14, he talks about Christian liberty. Verse 5. One person esteems one day better than another. Another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Look, if you think the Lord's Day, Sunday, Lord's Day, is a day where you will do no work and you will come to church and you will go home and read scripture and, and pray the rest of the day or do worship, that's perfect and that's awesome and that's fine. If God has placed that upon your heart, that's wonderful, but you don't make that a law for other people. That's what Paul's saying. Amen? If you have dietary restrictions in your own mind, keep it to yourself. (laughs) Don't press it as a law. That's the point. If you don't think you should eat meat, don't eat meat. I will eat meat. (laughs) Another principle, don't cause another brother to stumble. The principle, we see it in 1 Corinthians, look, if, if I have a young brother and he, he refuses to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol in the morning because Paul in his day, you could walk by a pagan temple and when they were done worshiping these false gods with the meat, they'd sell it on sale. And Paul would grab a steak, a T-bone on the way home. And he, his principle was this, if that will cause my younger brother in Christ to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. So for the sake of the brother sacrifice your freedom. Amen? And I taught, when we were in this, I talked about drinking alcohol. If you drink alcohol, okay, fine. Drunkenness is another thing, but don't cause your brother to stumble. Amen? And then finally, chapter 15 and 16, the grand conclusion, we have greetings and benediction. And again, Paul roots everything, the amazing story of God's grace and redemption In the Old Testament, verse 4, chapter 15. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Jesus has fulfilled it all. That's the point. Amen? It's what he started the letter with. And then Paul ends the chapter. His last words are what we must remember. Chapter 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers... Watch out for those who cause divisions. Watch out for those who create obstacles that are contrary to doctrine that you have been taught. As a matter of fact, he says, avoid them. Avoid them. And then he ends the chapter with the words we want to remember as a congregation. The glorious doxology in verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ... According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. What's obedience of faith, friends? Believing the gospel. 
Obedience of faith is believing the gospel and not believing it for a while and then believing then the gospel plus. Or believing that all roads lead to God so long as you're sincere. You can be sincere as the day is long and sincerely go to hell when you die. I say that seriously. Obedience to the gospel is believing the gospel to the end. So remember, beloved, Christ is the Lord who has sought you. Christ is the Lord who has bought you with his own blood to make you like him and to live with him one day. For one day you shall see him like as he is and you will then be like him. That's called what? Glory. Glory. That's an overview of Romans. You've been very patient. Thank you because I did go long over an hour. You were engaged. Thank you. It's my duty to do this. It's your duty to listen to this as the Christian people that you are. Amen. So now you have a very good grasp of the overarching view and understanding of the book of Romans. Amen. If you're here and you're not a believer, you just heard the gospel. If you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you by the authority of Jesus Christ to repent of your unbelief. To repent of false ideology. To turn from that sin and turn to Christ by faith entrusting yourself completely to him and you shall be saved, says the Bible. I love you. Thank you for being patient. Thank you for being a great congregation. May the Lord bless you as you continue to nurture your own loved ones in the truth and evangelize the lost. Amen. Father, we thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your care. Bless your people this day in Jesus' name. Amen.